Thanks, Kristen, for uh, leading us in time of prayer. I appreciate uh, that time each week to uh, slow down together with all of us together and uh, unite our hearts and our minds before the Lord. Muhammad Ali, yes, shift gears a little bit. This is Muhammad Ali. Uh, Muhammad Ali uh, may have uh, said, you, you may be aware that many times he said, uh, these words, I am the greatest, the greatest of all times. He may have coined the phrase, the term goat, greatest of all time, I'm not sure. But he wasn't shy, he was brash about saying that, about proclaiming that, and maybe he had good reason to, maybe more than anyone else or more than most people uh, for some. Before the age of 18, uh, then known by his birth name, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali won six. Kentucky Golden Glove titles, two national Golden Glove titles, two amateur athletic union AAU national titles. Then to cap off his amateur career, he goes off to the Olympics in Rome in 1960 and wins the gold medal in the light heavyweight division. After that, Ali became the youngest person ever to knock off a heavyweight uh, champion when he as underdog went in and knocked off Sonny Liston. Ali also became the first person in history to become the heavyweight champion of the world. Not one time, not two times, but three times. And so he had no uh, problem declaring, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. But we are left with the question, what makes, what truly makes someone great? What makes someone great? Dictionary.com defines greatness first as, among its several definitions, the quality or state of being important, notable, or distinguished. Greatness is the quality of being important, notable, or distinguished. Lamar Williamson has written, a fundamental human assumption is that greatness is measured by power in the form of physical strength and prowess, military might, money, think about that one, fame, think about that one, or anything else that enables a person to gratify his or her own desire and impose his or her will on others. Maybe not uh, maliciously, but nevertheless, to be able to have one's own way, to have that kind of power. We call the achievement of one or another of these goals in our world success, success. And though most of us have never gotten into a boxing ring and probably most of us have never had a desire to, my guess is that, is that many of us, in a variety of ways, many of them subtle, unspoken, would like to be successful or great or maybe even the greatest in some way at something, in some field, among some group, at some time, in some place, in some capacity, in someone's eyes or in some group's eyes. Wouldn't most of us like in some way to be the greatest? Maybe not a big spotlight shining on us, maybe not a lot of attention, but nevertheless, great or the greatest. Who hasn't at some point wanted to be really great, distinguished, notable, important in everything that goes with that? And Jesus understands that. Jesus understood that. And Jesus had something to say about this, which we'll read about in a moment in the Gospel of Mark. But first, let's pray. God, many of us in various ways want to be notable, distinguished, powerful, successful. We want to be great in big and small ways. We have, we do, we will. 
Help us to bring that desire, that want, under your lordship and into the realm of your grace. We ask that as we look at your word together that you would open our eyes, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would make our hearts into fertile and receptive soil. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are different than the meaning of your words in any way, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name and in his way, amen. We're now in the second half of Mark's gospel. Jesus is wrapping up his public ministry in the northern part of, or the northern region of Israel known as Galilee. Mark has emphasized in the first half of his gospel, showing his readers who Jesus was, who Jesus is. In the second half of Mark's gospel, his emphasis turns more now to the nature of Jesus' mission and what it means to follow him. First, who Jesus was, who Jesus is. Now the nature of Jesus' mission and what it means to follow him, in other words, discipleship. So beginning this morning at chapter nine of Mark's gospel, verse 30, listen closely, this is God's word. They, in other words, Jesus and his students, left that place where they had been and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. This was important. He said to his disciples, the son of man, his favorite way of referring to himself, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men a word that uh, delivered into the, hey, our Greek word for the day, means to really offer up as a sacrifice, delivered into, delivered unto. Delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid, again, to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Yeah. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be the first, first must be the very last and the servant of all. And of course, Jesus knew what the disciples had been talking about on the road. Jesus knew, he always knows. And so Jesus asked, not because he didn't know, or not because, or for his own benefit, but for the benefit of his disciples so that they knew that he knew, and for the sake of their relationship, so that they could grow, so that they would have the opportunity and the challenge to acknowledge, to confess, to come clean, to say, to be open. Similarly, God knows what we're thinking. God knows what we want. He knows what I want and what you want right now. He knows the meditations of our hearts. God asks nevertheless, or God invites us to in prayer as Kristen led us in, to speak those things, to say those things, to come clean, to open up with God in prayer and to say what God already knows, that we might have an open and healthy relationship. And do not worry, when we pray, when we are honest with God, even with our wants, even with any desire to greatness, God doesn't say, oh wow, I never knew that. I never knew that before. I never knew it was that bad. I never knew it was that big. Wow, I'm surprised. Thanks for sharing. God doesn't do that. God already knows. And so we can come to God and do not have to hide from God or Jesus as Jesus' disciples did when he asked them. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first, in other words, the greatest, must be the very last and the servant of all. This 
is how things are in the kingdom of God. This may be, in some ways, the simplest definition or unique, unique attribute of the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God is. In an individual's life and in the world, in this life and in the life to come, this is it. In varying degrees, we hold to that idea as church people, as Christians, as seekers in America. In varying degrees, we hold to the idea that we are interested in the kingdom of God. We pray, sometimes rotely, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Bring about your kingdom. We wanna see your kingdom. We wanna participate in your kingdom. We want your kingdom to be manifest. And this is what God's kingdom is like. Anyone who wants to be the first, in other words, the greatest in the kingdom of God must be the very last. In other words, the very last in line. And the servant, not of one, not of one's family, not of a few, but of all. And now verse 36. Jesus took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome just me, but the one who sent me, my father. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, is what he means here by these little ones, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And Jesus here is speaking not literally, but seriously. Not literally, but seriously. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where? The worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Again, Jesus is speaking not literally, but seriously. Everyone will be salted with fire, verse 49. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And in these 21 verses, Jesus says a whole lot of different things and Mark ropes in a whole lot of various aspects of Jesus' message, Jesus' teaching parables and proverbs that Jesus has sort of shared around this and Mark throws them all together and lumps them into one section in his gospel and it's more than we have time to sort of look at and pick through bit by bit, though we'll try for a few minutes. But I wanna focus this morning on what seems to be the main thrust of this passage and all of these seemingly independent passages that Mark rolls together in his gospel. While Jesus continues to live in the public eye and is often surrounded by huge crowds who follow him, he continues to value time alone with his disciples, with his apprentices, time to slow down and time for rest, maybe time for bonding, but also particularly for teaching. In direct and indirect ways, Jesus has now said to his disciples multiple times that he will be rejected, suffer, 
that he will be killed, and now for the second explicit time, that he will rise again on the third day, or after three days, he will rise. And again, Jesus' disciples didn't understand what he meant, and again, they were afraid to ask. Have you ever had a sense that something was true but didn't really wanna hear it? Have you ever been afraid that something might be true and you just don't want that thing to be true and so you'd rather just, we live like fish in Egypt in denial, right? We'd rather just, just keep it at arm's length, shut it out, block it out. That's what's going on with Jesus' disciples here. For Jesus to rise would mean that he first has to die. Not only could the disciples not imagine that, they didn't want to imagine that. They didn't want to think about that possibility, and so they kept that thought to themselves as if not speaking it would cause it to go away. But truth has this way of being resilient. So regardless of what we think or want to think or want to be true, truth stands. That's what was going on there. And it doesn't help to live in denial. And Jesus and disciples arrived back in Capernaum, which is sort of Jesus' home base in Galilee during the first part of his public ministry. Mark has taken his readers with Jesus on this big tour. If you've been with us, you remember Jesus has been all over Galilee and then he goes east to Tyre and up to Sidon and around to the Decapolis again and down and then back up. And now he's in Capernaum, kind of headquarters, to kind of wrap things up with the Galilee ministry before he goes off to Jerusalem to the end, which all of the gospel has been building toward and is. Hey, they're back in Capernaum, Jesus is teaching. Mark gives us three cues about what's really important. First, Capernaum, they enter a house, Jesus sits down, this is teaching time. What were you guys arguing about on the road? You may remember in the previous passage, Jesus has come down with Peter, James, and John from the so-called Mount of Transfiguration on the way down, Jesus says, uh, mentions again his dying and his resurrection. The disciples still are afraid to ask. They get to the bottom. They hook up with all of the other disciples. And there is arguing when Jesus, Peter, James, and John arrive. Jesus' disciples arguing among themselves, arguing with teachers of the law, maybe even arguing with the father whose son has a demon that they can't, they're not able to cast out. They're arguing again. And Jesus says, what were you arguing about on the road as they sort of followed a number of steps behind him. And parents, anyone who's been a parent or a teacher, we know this routine, right? What were you guys arguing about? Heads go down, eyes look to the right, eyes look to the left, things get really quiet, nobody knows anything. What are you arguing about? Why was the screaming? What was that noise? What happened? I heard something break. Why is little Johnny crying? Silence. The disciples were embarrassed, they were ashamed because they recognized the discrepancy between Jesus' denial of self, his own, and their refusal, their own desire for self-aggrandizement as they argued about who was the greatest. Their misunderstanding was not simply at that point intellectual, but existential. Their following of Jesus was outward only at that point. And Jesus challenges them on us as he challenges us, as he challenges the church, as he challenges anyone who would follow him. And Jesus doesn't despise the desire to be first. There's not a derision there. Jesus doesn't despise the desire to be first. He acknowledges it as very natural. 
But his definition of greatness stands the world's ordering of priorities on its head and radically changes a fundamental human assumption about achievement in every area of life, in every facet of reality, in how we value things, in what we choose to do and be about, in what we believe, in what we see as true. Do this with me. Put your hands like this. Let's go. Everybody, online too, you at home. And now go like this. There you go. That's Jesus' world. That's how he sees the kingdom in contrast to the natural world in which we live. And this is what Jesus ushers in. Their following of Jesus was this way, and Jesus says, no, we've gotta do it that way because that is the kingdom. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Yes, continue to desire Anyone who wants to be first, which is a gentle way of Jesus acknowledging because everyone in some way wants to be some kind of first. I was at a cross country meet yesterday. No one lined up at the starting line wanting to be last. I guarantee you, and we stayed till the end of several races and here come the last few trickling in. God bless them. But no one enters the race thinking, oh, I wonder if I can be last today. That would be awesome. Everyone wants to be recognized, honored, esteemed, valued, admired, even if subtly so, even if quietly so, even if humbly so. We want to win, we like winning, no one wants to lose. We wanna come out on head, ahead, on top, in good position. No one enters a race to finish last. No one looks for a job that offers downward mobility. Is it true? Has anyone ever applied for a job who thought maybe this might lead to a more lowly position one day? Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Nobody's looking to finish last. No one's looking for downward mobility until Jesus in human history. No one wanted to be a servant. It was so clearly the bottom of every socioeconomic ladder without rights, without respect, without resources. Without rights, without respect, without resources. Service in our day can have a positive ring to it, but it wasn't that way in Jesus' day. People then didn't volunteer. Volunteering now is sort of a noble thing. Not so in Jesus' day. There wasn't such a thing as voluntary community service that had a positive ring. People didn't do such things, but Jesus' introduction of his kingdom and a radical reordering of society at least introduced the idea which is still trying to find its footing and its way in the mainstream of our society and our hearts. We wanna be great, but not necessarily in Jesus' way or by Jesus' definition. Verse 36, Jesus took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jesus is here reinforcing his teaching on true greatness by an acted, lived out, tangible parable. Identifying with a child by an eloquent gesture of picking it up, maybe putting that child on his knee. The force of Jesus' action hinges on recognizing the low esteem which children were held in in Greco-Roman culture. 
Originally, readers of Mark's gospel would readily have seen in Jesus' embrace of the child his identification with the lowest and the lowliest, the least, and that he himself is identifying with servant of all. Teacher, verse 38, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. The problem here is not the man that was, was, the problem here is not that the man was not following Jesus, but that he was not following the 12. The problem isn't that the man, John points out, wasn't following Jesus, it's that he wasn't following the 12, and that they weren't important enough, and that their place and their position wasn't recognized. He's outside of us and our authority and our chain of command. He's not following you, no, he's not following us because he was operating in Jesus' name. They, again, lacked a servant mentality and a servant worldview. Verse 39, do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name in the next moment can say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Their reward. And then Jesus goes on to talk about a person's or his disciples, hopefully, care for other little ones, and we think children. But Mark modifies and clarifies who he's talking about thinking specifically of those who are new to following Jesus, who are young in their faith, who are just sort of on the fringes now and who are coming along. And Jesus says to his disciples, if what you do with your hands causes someone to stumble, cut it off. In other words, you having your rights the way that you want your rights is not what's most important here and in the kingdom, but really taking into consideration the rights, the place of those who are young in their faith and yet to learn. Again, it's a model, an example, a parable, a teaching of what he has just said about it, what it means to have a servant outlook on life and toward other people, toward the world, toward children, to the, toward those who are new in their faith, young in the faith, new in the church, not yet in the church. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to stumble, pluck it out. And then verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Matthew in his gospel uses this little teaching of Jesus in a different way. But here Jesus is saying disciples whose lives are not characterized by lowly service, nor by openness to Christians who are different, nor by care for those who are young in their faith, nor by rigorous self-discipline are like flavorless salt.
It could be any of those things and all of those things, but certainly one of those things must be the person who is humble, the person who serves, the person who puts others before themselves, the person who gladly embraces the last place in line. It was the 343 firefighters who carried their ton of equipment up the stairs in the World Trade Center and gave their lives to others, not knowing necessarily that they were giving their lives, but nevertheless taking great risks in order to serve. It was Todd Beamer who takes the lead on Flight 93 over Pennsylvania, giving up his own rights, his own life, to hopefully serve and save others. I was thinking of people in our own little orbit. This week, and reminded of Marilyn, who at whatever mysterious age you are, you won't tell us, and that's fine, that's your prerogative, continues to serve every Wednesday night for how many years with Kingdom Club preparing meals for little children? Oh, for little children. And Pam Rondeau with her, driving, helping, aiding. And Pat Hunter, who recently celebrated her 80th birthday, which she doesn't mind you knowing, do you? Because you had a wonderful 80th birthday party and posted it all over Facebook. who was outside in front of the building planting new plants so that the building might look like something that brings glory to God, digging in the dirt with Peggy Morris, doing humble work at 80 and beyond. Pat also uh, is, at least initially, single-handedly responsible for the women's retreat that many will enjoy, many women, next Saturday, who got that going, who initiated that, who embodies the heart of a servant. Pat sets up, uh, sets the tables for Kingdom Club as well. Again, serving children along with the rest of us as a congregation. To such, we couldn't be any more called than Jesus than we are. And so uh, Kingdom Club needs dishwashers and table parents, table hosts, and small group leaders if you can wash dishes, if you can serve in that way, give Gladys a call. We do a lot of other things in our lives. Jesus' call, if we want to experience greatness, if we want to know greatness, if we want to be great in the kingdom, is to descend to the place of a servant. To go where the world has said, don't go. You wouldn't want it. Why would you want to? But Jesus' promise is that there we will somehow find, even if we die, life and life in his name. Life for these bodies, life for this now, and life forever in his grace. Let's pray. God, together we proclaim and affirm that you are the greatest, and in Jesus Christ we see true greatness. In Jesus we see servant of all, 
In Jesus, we see servant king. And in Jesus, we see life, truth, wonder, and grace. Help us to live not only with his name, but also in his way. Not only with a title, but also with the joy of serving, giving, coming underneath, letting go, trusting. You've been so good to us. Be honored in us and in your church and in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.